I didn't graduate from Marceline High School. I grew up in Oklahoma, almost 400 miles from Marceline, Missouri. I came to Marceline in 1970, right out of college, as a teacher and a coach. Back then, I would have never dreamed that I would spend over 50 years connected with the school. But that's what happened. After 13 years as a teacher, I became the athletic director, then the secondary principal, and later a school board member. I married an MHS graduate. For almost 30 years, we lived four blocks from the school. Together, we raised two daughters who graduated from Marceline. More than two-thirds of my adult life has been closely associated with Marceline High School. So, not surprisingly, I have a few stories about what I experienced in those years. These are my memories of Marceline High School. Episode 1 The Forgotten Coach of Marceline High School Fall 1983 You won't find his picture in any of Marceline High School yearbooks. In fact, it might be difficult to find any evidence that he was ever a faculty member at the school. But he was, however briefly, a teacher and a coach there and one of the strangest individuals to ever walk the halls and athletic fields of Marceline High School. In the summer of 1983, the school had not been able to find a wrestling coach. The school board was determined to reinstate the wrestling program after a five-year hiatus. The board gave a mandate to Superintendent Mark Yaley and Principal Bill Lewis to find a new wrestling coach or else. Since they only had one applicant and they knew that the board was very serious about reviving the wrestling program, they offered the job to a man from Kansas, Ken Atwell. There may have been some questionable or missing items in his application, but he claimed to have experience as a wrestling coach, so he was hired as a social studies teacher, assistant football coach, and head wrestling coach. Coach Atwell was probably around 50 years old although his appearance suggested he might have been even older. He was a short man with flitting eyes that never seemed to stay focused on one person. He walked in an extremely slow gait that sometimes seemed unsteady. Someone at the time commented that he reminded them of their alcoholic uncle. Coach Atwell was a newlywed when he arrived in Marceline. At least he reported that he was recently married. This new woman in his life was about 20 years younger than him, and she had a son who might have been about 10 or 12. The family arrived in style driving a brand new yellow Camaro sports car 
with a black racing stripe. From the very beginning of the school year, the woman created some issues for the school administration. In the first couple of days, she accompanied Mr. Atwell to his classroom and stayed with him throughout the day. But this practice was quickly cut short as Mr. Lewis told them both that she could not stay in his room all day. She complied with the directive, but still came to school often to see him during his breaks. Before the wrestling season began, Coach Atwell was designated to be an assistant football coach. Jose Quintero had taken over as the head coach after being an assistant to Bruce Young for several years. Kurt Llewellyn was the other assistant coach. As Coach Atwell seemed incapable of contributing much energy or competence to his assignment, Coach Quintero struggled to find meaningful assignments for him. One thing he tried was the traditional practice of sending one of the assistant coaches to the top of the press box during games. Coach Atwell proved to be ineffective in this role. Whether or not he contributed anything through the field telephone to the sideline, another issue quickly arose. At halftime, the assistant coach was expected to join the team to help discuss strategy and motivate players. Coach Atwell took so long to get down from the press box and walk to the end zone of Chester Ray Stadium that Coach Quintero reported that halftime was over when he got there. Questions about Atwell's competence as a teacher also arose. Expectations for coaches in the classroom were not always high in those days, but one event created quite a stir among the staff. Frank Frigo, who was working as a substitute teacher after his retirement as a school principal, was subbing for Mr. Atwell one day. As the day went on, Frank called out to any teachers he saw passing in the hallway. To each, he said, he wanted to show them something. What he showed them was Mr. Atwell's grade book. In his handwriting, Mr. Atwell had written the names of the students across the top of the page for each class section and the assignments down the side of the page. For those of you who are too young to remember when teachers had to handwrite all the scores for each student, this was opposite the normal practice. As the first few weeks of school rolled past, another unusual situation developed. Although he claimed he had experience in wrestling, the school wanted to send him to a coaching clinic at Missouri University. Coach Atwell said he would go, but only if his wife could attend with him. He said he was willing to pay her fee, but was unwilling to go without her. 
Under such circumstances, the school could not find a reason to refuse his request, but enough suspicions had now been raised that the school discreetly called the MU Athletic Department and advised them not to take a personal check for her fee. As the year went on, the behavior of Mr. Atwell and his companion became more and more of an embarrassment to the school. Meanwhile, the administration struggled to fill in the gaps of his credentials. He claimed that he was having his Kansas certification papers sent to the district office, but they never arrived. Somewhere near the end of the first quarter, the administration determined that there were no certification papers and told Mr. Atwell that his employment was at an end. There was never another trace of him after that day, although General Motors finance collection agents frequently asked the school where he could be found. One of the greatest mysteries surrounding Ken Atwell is his omission from the school yearbook. He would have been working when the football team picture was taken and when individual shots of teachers were scheduled. Perhaps there was a reason why he didn't want his picture taken. There was a running joke about this for many years. Someone had taken a picture of the football field and the press box during a 1983 football game. It was said that the tiny speck on top of the press box was the only known photograph of Coach Ken Atwell. Episode 2, The Great Sofa Raid, Fall 1976. It has been unusual, but not unheard of, for teachers and coaches to work at MHS more than once. Brian McLaughlin left for Arizona to become a travel agent, only to return a few months later when the school needed a basketball coach. Bill Johnson was even hired by Marceline three times, but the only MHS graduate to serve two tours at their alma mater was Jim Phillips. Jim Phillips was a very successful high school basketball coach. Jim's first term of employment was in the 1970s and included the stellar 1977-78 squad led by Eddie Walsworth and Lindsey Stewart. The second began in the late 1990s when Eric Delaney was his star player. Jim, or LaPierre as he was more commonly known, always knew how to coach basketball. Away from the court, he never seemed to fully understand or conform to the expectations for a school teacher. Jim was not always popular among the other teachers. 
He tended to shirk his responsibilities outside the basketball court. Personally, I got really mad at him once during homecoming week. He and I were supposed to be co-sponsors of the 7th grade class. He didn't show up for float building until the third night. But when he did, what happened made my frustration disappear. Upon his arrival, someone handled him a staple gun and told him to attach paper napkins to the wagon. I swear it wasn't two minutes into the task when he fired a staple into his finger and began a torrent of questionable language. He immediately left and never returned to help with the float. But the look on his face was priceless. It took me almost five minutes to stop laughing. Although Jim may have been considered an overage jock, one of his friends called him the world's oldest teenager, he had another side that few people saw. I used to think that when he sat in the bleachers while his PE class played basketball, that the paper he was reading contained sports news. But often, he was engaged in another interest, expanding his vocabulary. He had a habit of selecting one new word a day to add to his personal fluency. What a paradox this scene created. A middle-aged man dressed in sweats with his butt crack usually exposed, paying no attention whatsoever to the students in his charge, but engaged in a highly intellectual activity. That was Jim Phillips. Again, speaking personally, I was the secondary principal during Jim's second stint as a teacher and coach at Marceline. One day, I went to him with a question. Two of the boys on his basketball team had received A's in B.E. I asked him how it could be that these two had received such a high grade. He stammered that they had done some extra credit work. But Jim, I replied, they were never enrolled in your class. As sometimes happens with successful coaches, Jim could display a bit of arrogance. This was what led to the great sofa raid. During his final stretch at Marceline, Jim shared an office with the other coaches in the basement of the field house. As the PE teacher, he used it more than the other coaches. This apparently led him to assume that he could decorate it as he pleased. He must have thought that he needed a better place to rest between classes, and he knew just where to go. There was a sofa in the teacher's lounge that caught his eye. So one day, when the teachers arrived to smoke and visit, the sofa was gone. It took a couple of days for the teachers to figure out where the sofa had gone. A male coach, I wonder who, 
must have ratted Jim out because women would never have been allowed to enter the boys' locker room. But when they did discover the perpetrator of the theft, they charged into action. I should note that it was primarily the female teachers who were outraged, or at least they were the ones who transferred righteous indignation into vigilante action. On the next Friday night after the theft, there was a home football game. The women teachers secured a key to the coach's office from some unnamed male coach, I wonder who, and waited until the game started to conduct the raid. There has never been a definitive list of those involved. Some that were usually mentioned were Hulda Williams, Teddy Horton, Dana Reek, Mary Jane Arts, Cindy Hoover, and Judy Cup. Whoever participated, the results were considered by the faculty as frontier justice. The sofa was back in the teacher's lounge on Monday morning, and the women were discreetly honored for their heroism. There were a number of teachers who were observed loafing around the field house that Monday morning. One in particular, I wonder who, was especially anxious to see the look on Jim's face when he came up from his office. I can assure you that he was not disappointed. Episode 3, The Sports Banquet Competition, Spring, Early 1970s. There have been many changes in high school sports programs over the years, but one practice remains pretty much the same, the end-of-season sports banquet. Admittedly, sometimes the carry-in dinner is omitted, but the speeches by the coaches are mandatory and usually follow a predictable pattern, at least usually. Tom Hauser and Cotton Cavanaugh challenged that tradition during one memorable banquet. In those days, there was only one banquet in the spring. The high school athletes for all the year's sports teams were recognized. This made for a rather long program as each head coach was expected to review their squad season and present a few individual awards. The length of the program had become something of an issue because of one particular coach. Walter Hassler came to MHS in 1969 as a wrestling and football coach. His first football season did not go well, but he had an immediate and positive impact on the wrestling program. The team racked up impressive seasons while usually competing against much larger schools. Walt had a special relationship with all of his athletes and a burning desire not to short any of them during his speeches 
at these banquets. Cotton had taken the head girl's basketball position as a favor to the school when they couldn't find a coach. I was the boys' golf coach. On this particular night, everyone had enjoyed a great dinner, and as the tables were cleared and the microphone tested, Cotton and I both knew what was in store for us. Coach Hassler's wrestling squad had been especially successful that year, and his speech reflected that. As he established a new record for himself, well over an hour, I turned to Cotton and said, Just wait until it's my turn. After the wrestling season recap, it was my turn. I had organized and rehearsed my comments on the golf team until they were as brief as possible while meeting the minimum expectations for a coach. I finished in just under three minutes. As I sat down next to Cotton, I whispered, Beat that. Cotton's team had done well that year, and I knew he couldn't better my time, but I quickly learned that I had underestimated his resourcefulness and his willingness to defy convention. He strode to the microphone and uttered these words. You all know me. You all know my girls. Thank you. And he sat down. <laughs>